Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, it's your turn. Tell us about the story that you picked. So I picked a story that was actually recommended by uh, longtime listeners to the podcast. might remember Carl, who uh, did a couple of episodes with us. He did The Pugilist at Rest and A&P by John Updike. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. That was a great one. Yeah, they were both great stories, right? Well, he yeah. didn't pick A&P, but he picked Pugilist at Rest, which is a phenomenal story. We should do more Tom Jones stuff. Uh-huh. But he's we were in the workshop and he was talking about this story. Oh, it's called uh, Car Crash While Hitchhiking by Dennis John. And he, he was talking about, about it, and I was like, we should do that on the podcast. And so here we are. Here we are. A salesman who shared his liquor and steered while sleeping. A Cherokee filled with bourbon. A VW, no more than a bubble of hashish fumes, captained by a college student. And a family from Marshalltown who head-oned and killed forever a man driving west out of Bethany, Missouri. I rose up sopping wet from sleeping under the pouring rain and something less than conscious, thanks to the first three of the people I've already named, the salesman and the Indian and the student, all of whom had given me drugs. At the head of the entrance ramp, I waited without hope of a ride. What was the point, even, of rolling up my sleeping bag when I was too wet to be let into anybody's car? I draped it around me like a cape. The downpour raked the asphalt and gurgled in the ruts. My thoughts zoomed pitifully. The traveling salesman had fed me pills that made the linings of my veins feel scraped out. My jaw ached. I knew every raindrop by its name. I sensed everything before it happened. I knew a certain Oldsmobile would stop for me even before it slowed, and by the sweet voices of the family inside it, I knew we'd have an accident in the storm. I didn't care. They said they'd take me all the way. The man and the wife put the little girl up front with them and left the baby and back with me and my dripping bedroll. I'm not taking you anywhere very fast, the man said. I've got my wife and babies here, that's why. You are the ones, I thought, and I piled my sleeping bag against the left-hand door and slept across it, not caring whether I lived or died. The baby slept free on the seat beside me. He was about nine months old. All right. So had you heard of this before they suggested it at the workshop? So, okay, this is funny. I had this book. I had Jesus' Son book since like the early 90s. It was on my shelf. And I don't remember if I read if I read it. I know I didn't okay. read the whole thing. I might have okay. opened it and started on this. This story is the first story. So I might have started reading this story a long okay. time ago. But I never went back to it. It was always like this. I should read this. I need to read this. But I never. And then one day the book was just on a shelf and my cat peed on the bookshelf and peed all over this book. And so I tried to save the book but it's a book covered in cat pee. It's, it's not salvageable. And I had it for years. I had like trying to let it dry out, trying to like, you know, oh, put stuff on it, trying to just like, and finally it was like this, it's unsalvageable. And so I had to get rid of it. <laughs> so, and I never finished, I never read it, never uh, replaced it. But now I've read this. I'm like, I need to replace that book. I, should, I need to go get, get it again. So I want to read the whole thing. Yeah. So that's the story. I had the story in my house for <laughs> decades but uh i don't remember actually reading it so okay well this was the first time for me and i don't know that i've read anything else by dennis johnson but i love this one. Oh yeah yeah that's why i'm like i need to get this book back i'm gonna read it yeah i just thought it was so great he seems to me like the kind of writer that i feel like will occasionally encounter in a workshop who you can tell has raw talent yeah and i'm not saying that this is unpolished it's just he probably has always had this voice and this inclination to tell stories in this wine 
grinding way and these like kind of strong voices that you just you probably can't teach and even if you could it wouldn't be yours you know this feels like authentically i don't i don't need to know dennis johnson to feel like this feels like authentic you know i don't i don't think he's like embodying a character so much yeah and he's got that eye like we talked about the writer's eye in some episode 100 years ago where like you see things in different ways and you're able to express them in language and like really like this line the blood ran off him in strings you know you could it's so visual it's so evocative but like it takes a a writer with a real keen eye to like come up with those lines you know right all the great ones have those lines yeah and you're right we've talked about how a lot of it comes down to being really familiar with maybe how blood runs off a body or whatever but also like you said just being able to capture it in the kind of language that makes it really vivid and you haven't heard it described that way but you know exactly what they mean yeah so we've talked about that and that's throughout right there's tons of examples of that oh yeah yeah that was just i opened it to a page and that's a random example right and it feels like at once unfamiliar and familiar right you're like wait what does he just oh my god yes that's right but i think what the other thing at play here maybe that because i think i remember talking in that episode about how it's really hard to maybe train yourself to figure that out you have to like really spend a lot of time thinking about what you're writing and not just going for the first thing you go for but for certain people like dennis johnson it probably comes very naturally yeah practice helps practice helps but when i think you're reading this kind of stuff the other thing that you can kind of pick up from it is that his sentence construction just kind of lends itself to these ways of describing things he doesn't oh, ju- yeah yeah this the construction is what also kind of throws you for a loop it's like a lot of those like inverted clauses i feel like like there's this this line that i just i underlined it because it, you already read it but it was so early on that i could tell that this is what he was going to start doing through all of it it says what was the point even of rolling up my sleeping bag when i was too wet to be let into anybody's car but right before that he says at the head of the entrance ramp i waited without hope of a ride maybe in other sentences and other stories then that next sentence would say i didn't bother to roll up my sleeping bag do you know what i mean yeah and instead just like the construction is just like flipped in a better way what was the point even because you don't know where it's going when he says when he starts that he could be going anywhere instead of saying i didn't roll up my sleeping bag there was no point this was like those um certain kind of clauses that kind of have free free mobility within a sentence you know you can put them anywhere yeah they kind of modify the verb but they're free to like this is where um they're like participles like they're a dangling participle is one that doesn't connect appropriately but you can move participles around in different parts of the sentence and like at the head of the entrance ramp is one of those right he could write i waited at the head of an entrance ramp without hope etc he says i waited without hope yeah yeah and it sounds like really simple and i don't even know that it's occurring to him when he does it i think this is what i mean when i say that i think he has a natural talent i don't think he has to think about what he's doing with these clauses and where he puts them when but i think that is one thing where if you're trying to learn this style of voice you can play with well one way to think about it like if you do want to play with it is where do you want your sentence to start like he's starting it with like basically starting with setting right Right. at the head of an answer entrance ramp and where do you want it to end you want to end with i'm waiting for a ride without hope of a ride right so you know those are your brackets you can like kind of jangle the sentence around to get the right motion between the two i always think of sentences like you never never try to think of a sentence as an isolation like you can work and rework a sentence to come up with it perfectly formed but forget that it should attach to the one that came before and it needs to lead to the one that comes after so like where you put those elements of the sentence need to take into consideration what's before and after it and so this kind of like ability to just toss everything in the air and let it fall where it needs to fall is you know that's something that definitely as writers we should hone and work on right i feel like maybe he does it again over here like i'm trying to look for other examples but when he starts actually describing 
describing the car crash. It says, I was thrown against the back of their seat so hard that it broke. I commenced bouncing back and forth. I underline that line. I commenced yeah. bouncing back and forth. Right. Like, what a great. That's <laughs> just a great line. And then the next one I, I feel like is, it's not like this inverted clause, but it's, it's a way to like subvert what it is you think we're talking about. You know, he says a liquid, which I knew right yeah. away was blood, blew around the car and rained down on my head instead of like blood rained down on my head. That's almost like a sensory way to describe it. Like, it oh, is. there's something in the air. It's a liquid. And oh, I know it's blood. Yeah. So he's playing with these sentences. He's he's introducing this information, even like I commenced to bounce back and forth or whatever. Like all the ways that he's describing it, I think they are sensory, like you said, but I think he's choosing that because he's doing such a good job of reminding us over and over again that this guy is on, high on drugs. Yes. He's doing such a good job of explaining things where he's feeling them, anticipating them and observing them, but he's also having an out-of-body experience. And even if you weren't high on drugs, being in a car crash would be like really, you'd be jilted by it. You know, like what's what's happening? I'm, I don't know. I'm confused, but he's capturing it all in a way that also makes it feel like he's floating through the experience. You know, he, he has like a couple sentences after this where he's, he talks about how he doesn't know how he should feel, but he doesn't feel the way he thinks he should, you know? So he is having this out of body experience. It's not the way you would describe a car crash if you thought that you were like of sound mind and mood even. So that's all fun. But I think even if you weren't trying to capture that voice, I guess is my point. Even if you weren't trying to capture that state of mind, these types of sentence construction can like lead to that voice for you. Oh yeah. You don't have to be writing about a guy that's high on drugs going like, what the fuck is happening? To to have sentences that capture a voice like that. It's also like part of the voice, part of the uh, kind of experience of the story is it's very impressionistic because yeah. it's, it's very short. It's putting a lot, but it's like just getting little snapshot things, right? And I mean, even the first line is like a salesman a Cherokee, a VW, you know, just these little flashbulb things like, which is kind of the way he's trying to express experiencing this whole event, these whole series of events. Mm -hmm. It's like just little flashbulb sensory moments. And so stringing those together is how you create the narrative. But each sentence, each section, each little moment is just this little flashbulb sensory moment. So that that's part of the voice, kind of the style, the kind of the presentation of it as well. They work with each other. Right. He has this other line uh, where he talking about the cop cars and stuff that are showing up to the scene finally um and he's he's just kind of wandering around at this point because yeah it seems to be this is obviously i think pretty obviously written in a time where it's like you'd be hitchhiking so i don't know maybe it's like the 70s who knows but it's like pre-cell phones and so when this crash happens they don't have any way to get in touch with anyone he's like flagging down other motorists and telling them to drive back into town to tell someone about it so it takes a while for people to show up and he's literally wandering and then there's a line where he says i didn't talk to anyone my secret was that in this short while I'd gone from being the president of this tragedy to being a faceless onlooker at a gory wreck. And I feel like these are other examples of that kind of sentence where you're like, where is he going with this? And what he's basically saying is nobody knew that I was in the crash, you know, but he says it in such a great way. I just love this line. He was the president of this tragedy. And maybe this is like him trying to, again, capture that state of mind where he's just out of it. He's like, I was the president of this tragedy. It sounds like something you might say if you were high, but I think it's better than that. And then and even on the next page, it says down the hall came the wife. She doesn't know that her husband's dead yet. And then later on in that paragraph, it says, what a pair of lungs. And it just comes out of nowhere. What a pair of lungs. She shrieked as I imagined an eagle would shriek. It felt wonderful, wonderful to be alive to hear it. I've gone looking for that feeling everywhere. That was like my favorite paragraph. But I like how he just kind of interrupts this scene where instead of saying down the hall, I heard a shriek. It must have been Janice or Janice screamed or whatever. He just says, what a pair of lungs. And even that kind of stuff is just so well done. Yeah, he's uh, 
kind of appreciating her in a certain yeah. way, you know? Yeah. And he's telling us what happened without telling us in a sort of like plot way. But the whole paragraph, he he's kind of is, has that appreciation. Like down oh, yeah, the hall yeah. came the wife. She was glorious, burning, right? Like yeah. she made an impression. Like, And the part of it is like, they know that her husband has died and she's about to find out. And Yeah, um, that's all clear. Yeah. Yeah, I guess w- what I was going to say just is that he can have a sentence like that, like what a pair of lungs and then follow it by saying like she shrieked. But yeah. it's not so jarring that we don't know what's happened because he he's telling us what's happening. It's just like he's, do you know what I mean? When some language is sometimes so flowery and so over the top that you kind of lose sense of what is actually physically happening in a scene. See, in the workshop, I would probably, for this one, I wouldn't, obviously. This one I think is perfectly done, even in a workshop. Yeah. But in, in the workshop, somebody would do something similar to this, but it wouldn't work. And I would tell them, work. Yeah. I would tell them, I need to know what you're talking about before you say it. Because before you say it, right. You can say it that way as long as you've kind of earned the, you, you have to like aim me to a scene i have to be with you yeah but because everything is kind of these these flashbulb moments even continuous scene in this are still done in flashbulb in a certain way he's already established that this is the way it's going to be so we know what a pair of lungs can come out of nowhere it can be a flashbulb and then we're going to get an explanation we're going to figure it out the whole thing is like that right yeah in the workshop i would say switch those two sentences she shrieked what a pair of lungs because I need to know what you're talking about yeah you know I might say I, I wanted to like defend it just because if they had set up the paragraph well enough he did I would I had no thought of that kind reading his work no but I have read things from the workshop that are right. done this way where they switch it they're just jarring yeah it's out you're of nowhere like, you don't know what's going on I have on. no clue what you're talking about yeah I mean I keep wanting to say like you have to earn those kind of sentences but I don't really think that's what I mean it's not like here's a clever sentence and he's like indulging him Himself, but it's just like you have to be a good enough writer that I'm a lot that I understand what you're saying. I think sometimes too, what we see with characters like this that are having like they're high, they're drunk they're mentally unwell, whatever it is. If they're not of sound mind, I think a lot of times stories go so off the rails because the writer is trying to capture that state of mind in a way that like gives us that state of mind. I can't focus on anything because the character doesn't know what's happening. This is done way more deftly, right? It's not just, I don't know. I think sometimes people think they're being clever when they try to capture that. And they might describe something like this crash in a way that didn't resemble a crash at all. You might have to really guess that it was a crash. Do you know what I mean? Yes. He knows knows what's happening but he's he's like almost going through it slow motion so that's of a benefit that's like a fine line in this type of writing so he's careful to make sure that the reader knows what's happening even if they might have to do a little more work to like follow him closely which i don't think we're having to do work to follow him closely but i think his writing style just like requires like a level of attention right but those details are very concrete and specific they are vivid and they're all there that's why we can follow it because they're extremely they're not muddy it's not like like abstractions and like yes. confusion. It's very concrete, specific, vivid details. Yeah, your writing doesn't have to necessarily reflect <laughs> the muddiness he might be feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I think even when you're high, you're still focused on very specific things. Oh, they yeah. Might you're, be yes, very focused. Strange things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to think too about like, uh, you know, a lot of times I do like this. I think there's a time and a place and a reason for your writing to mimic the pace of a scene. So like we talk about this a lot in like fight scenes, I feel 
feel like when there's like hand-to-hand combat, sometimes people will write things so slowly and in such detail that it doesn't match the pace of the scene. You know, they'll describe a way that like a sword met another sword. And I'm like, okay, but that was a half, a, that was a fraction of a second. You're, do, you're trying to do this like flowery language thing, but like, you know, the scene is dragging on because it feels like what's happening is faster than you could describe it or something. And then I think we can see the alternative in that like bullet to the brain story that we read where he literally slows down. And you know that like in that scene, a bullet is, is meeting his brain and killing him. And yet we have the longest section of prose in that story comes from the description of what he's seeing and thinking right before. Or what he does not thinking about. He did yes, not think yes, about this. Yet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it slows down in a moment of like high action. And sometimes I feel like uh, people will try to mess with the pace of a action-packed scene unfolding in a way that like they're trying to prove a point by doing it and it doesn't always work but I feel like he mastered it well like and you're describing it as flashball moments and he does that a lot of it's flashball but it's also like capturing the wandering around and it might be flashball but he's not sacrificing telling us those concrete details it's not like he could he could have taken this to another level but like blood car crash sound honking you know what I mean and you'd be like oh god this is awful Yeah, in a different context, it might work if you, some writer might be able to get that kind of thing to work. But no, I think what we said at the very beginning is saved by his eye, his writer's yes. eye. And they're flashbulb moments, but they're connected. They're, yeah, he makes right. connections. Like they, they go one to the next. Yeah, they're not non sequiturs. <laughs> yeah. And even overall, the car crash is connected with the ending. The ending of the story has that, uh, it's like out of nowhere. Where did this, why is he in this rehab now? Like, you know, but it moves right into it. He talks about, um, uh, there's nothing wrong with me. And it's always been my tendency to lie to doctors as if good health consisted only of the ability to fool them. Some years later, one time when I was admitted to the detox at Seattle General Hospital, I took the same tack. So it's, he has that connection and moves into something completely different that is also about this, this whole thing, right? It's- yeah part of the whole story. This was the part that I mentioned that Carl brought this story up and he talked a lot about how this, how does this ending fit onto the story? It's like, it goes in right. this random crazy direction and yet it works. It's like this brilliant ending. <laughs> You're like, why? <laughs> why is this such a brilliant ending? Yeah, we didn't even like really talk about what the ending talks about. I mean, you hinted at it here, but yeah, he's like kind of talking about how he's in a, uh, well, he says a detox center at Seattle General Hospital, but it's years later. It says some years later, one time when yeah. I was admitted to the one detox. Time. One time. Yeah. He said, I took the same tact. So he's relating it to the fact that on scene at the crash, someone asks him, are you okay? You should get an x-ray. In the hospital after the- Yeah, yeah, after after the crash. Right. And he's like, no, I'm good. And they're like, there could be something wrong though. And you need to catch it now. And he's like, no, I'm good. And then there's like another line where he says like, I always thought that like the key to health was lying to the doctor. And I like underlined that because I was like, oh yeah, for sure. I was like, don't tell him what's wrong. Um, They'll diagnose you with something. So then he goes on to say that he took the same tact later. And then like you said, it kind of like jumps ahead and you're like trying to figure out how this uh fits in and i think he does like pull it off with that last sentence where he's basically saying like and i don't, i think this is where it's like kind of open for interpretation but i think what he's trying to accomplish with this whole thing is like he knows he's not well for whatever variety of reasons and you don't really really need to know why but he was like thrust into this car crash and he was just kind of like i have a literal infant in my arms you know i love that when he's carrying that baby around he's like, what he's am like I trying to, to do? Can you, do you want to take the baby to the yeah truck he tries driver? to give to a truck driver like, no, and the truck driver's 
like, yeah, you better hang on to it is what he said. And like, he just kind of like knows he's not equipped for this. He he doesn't, he can't do it right now, even though, even though he might want to. And then, and then at the end, he's like giving this example. He's like, when I was at this detox center, they're literally injecting me with drugs that they're telling me are vitamins. And like, I know I'm not well, but I can't get over it type thing. He says like, you expect me to help you. You ridiculous people, you expect me to help you. He's like, I'm drowning too. I have to put my own fucking life mask on. Yeah. Oxygen mask. Yeah, put that's what it feels like. your own oxygen mask on before you yeah. help others. Yeah, that's kind of what this feels like. And and I think he does a good job of like kind of capturing it. He's like, I'm a good guy. I'm just trying to hitchhike somewhere. When I got in this car, I kind of knew things weren't going to go well, but I was making that choice for myself. And then this baby was involved and then these other people died and it was weird, but I couldn't even feel a certain way about it because I don't even feel really right about myself right now. I think he does a really good job of capturing that without making him sound like he's wallowing. He's not having like a pity party. He's just trying to like tell you what it's like. I think this whole anecdote served to tell you what it's like when he says that he can't help you right now. You know, whatever that means. Help you could be like, I called you up and I wanted to hang out today. And he, this guy said no. I like the last line. Obviously, it, it's the last line for a reason. I was wondering, I was thinking about this. It says, and you, you ridiculous people, you expect me to help you. And I was like, what if that were a question mark at the end? He obviously chose for it oh. to be a period. But like those little decisions, you know, you could put it, you could make that a question mark. You don't change a single word. You just make it a question mark. And how much gets changed by that? It's almost, it's like an accusation more. But here as a period, it's something else. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, and you, you ridiculous people, you expect me to help you? I guess the period is kind of like he's already reached the conclusion. And the question mark would be like he had just been put in this scenario and he's trying to tell you in real time why he can't. But the period's yeah. more like this is the story of my life. I'm telling you, I can't. I've reached this conclusion. I'm confident in it. I cannot help you. You expect me to help you and I can't. Versus like the incredulousness of yes. being in the moment put on the spot. Yeah. It's more of a confrontation. Yeah. He would kind of be like, really? Let me explain <laughs> to you this car crash this one time. Yeah. Yeah. He's not like upset about it. He's just trying to tell you what it's like to be him right now. Well, I guess my takeaway is what I kicked off with, which is just like the sentence construction. And I remember learning this in a workshop I was in after college. And it was like one of the few tangible things I feel like I've ever been taught in a workshop. A lot of times it's just like, you know, share your work. We'll tell you why it sucks, but we don't really (laughs) have anything else to tell you about it. You know, and this was like one of the the exercises that we got was like to play around with clauses and things like that. I don't know that any of us achieved anything close to this, but it was just, just a really good reminder because every once in a while, I think we'll all write a sentence and it kind of comes out of the blue and we didn't think too hard about it but it naturally reads like one of these ones that you would underline right one of these clever sentences that you just you're proud of but it just occurred to you and the point being that you can <laughs> force yourself to do it you can practice it and if you yeah. do practice it it like becomes part of your you know language overall and it can become part of your voice and part of other characters voices and if you are trying like really hard to achieve something in particular then these kind of sentences can like help yeah whatever that is. Or I remember when we had to do it in the workshop, it was like basically shoehorning it in. And that's what I did. I like wrote my story however I wanted to. And then I went back and I was like, oh, that's right. And uh, just like rewrote a paragraph that way. And uh, it really makes you sound like you know what you're doing. So I think you can like kind of go back. You can you don't have to like make it this arduous process where you're like checking stuff off as you write. I think you can write and then in your edit process, go back and say, is there, can I say this in a better way? Is this an opportunity right here in this space? 
space and time in the plot, in the action, whatever, where I can kind of like slow down and like think about this and it'll add to it versus, you know, be kind of useless or unnecessary. One thing you're talking about shoehorning like these things in, and this kind of leads to my takeaway. Like when you do rewrite those sentences, when you uh-huh. when you restructure them, like I said at the beginning, like you, one way to do it is to try to put the pieces that connect with previous sentences early uh-huh. in the sentence and the pieces yeah. that connect with later sentences later in the sentence. So you can like, you jumble it up so that things flow between sentences rather than being self-contained or isolated. Right. But this story made me think a lot about connections. I mean, it was because of what Carl said about the ending connecting with the rest of the story. But one of the keys to a writer's like eye, like their ability to see things in like a unique way that they express on the page is how they make connections and the connections they do make. The fact that Dennis Johnson connected this accident with this other moment in detox, the fact that he connected these, like all the little, even from one moment to the next, to like yeah. and the things he left in that the things he took out like I'm sure a lot of other stuff happened that night in real life but he only presented these particular moments and made the connections between them to make a story thinking about how moments connect with other moments in the way you structure your sentences and even just in the the kind of the way it builds a narrative it's really important to like how you as a writer are seeing things and like what you're expressing in your story um, and how the story winds up coming to life thinking about those connections that's my takeaway. No, that's a good uh, way to kind of put it. It's probably easier because I think about this a lot in terms of journalism, where it's like you go to an event or you see a thing unfold, and obviously you're not going to do a play-by-play. That's not like what the story is about. You're trying to like look for connections and what do I explain next? And so that's part of what I enjoy doing in that kind of work. And you're right. It comes down to, okay, maybe I was there for four hours. Maybe this car crash lasted all night. But like you said, what connects to the next part? What like furthers my thesis? We, we talk about that or the, like the theorem discussion we talk about like how do I prove my theorem here like what am I actually including that's important and those are the connections at least in my head yeah. when you're talking about that yeah because you're you're developing one thing in this moment how does that thing that you're developing change or move or become something else and does it matter like does this really matter or are you just like oh that was cool to describe like who cares if they're wearing a blue shirt yes maybe maybe it's important yes why is it important right how is that going to impact what comes next yeah I think it's sometimes easier when you are writing about something real to make it come across in this narrative way to kind of like uh, fictionalize it almost because you are working with like this wealth of information. You know, all this stuff happens. So it's easier to decide what the details are. And I think the difficulty is sometimes in fiction is to invent those details and decide what's important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think it's easier to look at what actually happened and decide like this is or isn't important. And I, I do credit like journalism with if I'm at all good at some of this stuff, I think that's why it's because I've done it from the opposite end. Yeah, the story has to be about something. It's not just... Hey, I went to this thing and then people are like, okay. Yeah. This all comes from Aristotle. He he originated oh, yeah, this for whole sure. I think stream. about him all the time. Well, I mentioned this in a very early episode of the podcast. I bring it up all the time. A life is not a story. It takes the writer, he didn't say the writer, but the author of the story to select the pieces that are presented in order to make it a story. Because he was talking about tragedy, you know, and like yeah. from the, the Greek point of view, all those stories were known, right? The right. story of Heracles or the story of Troy or whatever whatever were known. And then each tragedian would select some subset of those known facts to write their little story about their play. Whereas when we write fiction, we have to make up so much of it. Like you said, that's a slightly different task, but it's still the same thing. You're arranging it for the reader. 
what are you selecting to arrange in front of the reader's eyes and in what order? Right. So everyone should read Aristotle or... Or listen to the podcast. Do journalism. Podcast is easier. It is a lot easier. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.